1: For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hello, and we're back after a one-week uh, hiatus on cooking issues. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Burt's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Joined as us usual in the studio with Nastasha Hammer Lopez. Hey, Nastasha. Good. And uh, we have uh, Jack in the engineering booth, and also for the first time in the engineering booth, uh, Wyatt. How are you guys doing? We're great. Yeah. So, Wyatt, what is it that you uh, that you do here at the Heritage Radio Network?
1: Wash and full service radio on
3: Thursday nights.
2: Hmm. Nice. Sweet. Awesome. And do we, by the way, Jack, did we ever get? Uh, do we ever get uh, cutting the curd uh, scheduled to call in and have it cutting the cooking issues? Uh... Yeah,
1: hopefully he's going to come on the second half today.
2: Oh, nice. All right. So. Yeah. All right. So uh, this last week I was gone because I was in uh, Nastasia's home state. Actually, my home state. Yeah. But we moved out. You know, I moved out when I was uh, three, and uh, Nastasia had to stay in Covina long enough to see the filming of Good Burger before she came out. Uh, to the sweet, sweet East Coast. I had no idea that Good Burger was uh, filmed in uh, your hometown. Yeah. So for, like, years, did you walk around going, boogity, 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 or no?
4: No, I think it was when I was in elementary school. Um,
2: so. It's like
4: 96,
2: right? 97? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Freshman. Classic. Sinbad. Do you remember the movie at all? Sin- no. Sin- wow. Sinbad, Sinbad is uh, in, I think it's a relatively late role for Sinbad. But uh, he is the uh, teacher who's a little bit crazy, who gets hit by like hit by uh, the the car by Dexter's car, and he's got these <laughs> sweet lapels and a sweet sweet fro in that movie. Uh, my kids now are now obsessed with Good Burger.
1: White points out George Clinton also in that movie.
2: George Clinton was one of the dancing crazies in the uh, in the institution. Uh, yeah, you're like, holy crap! That's the actual. Yeah, the movie has like like lots of like little. Kind of classic nuggets in it, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic, classic. Uh, good, good, good burger style movie there. But my, the problem is, I can't get my kids to stop imitating and repeating portions of it.
1: There's a good burger like in Union Square or something, they, right? They're not related, I are know, they? They're not
2: related. They must be somehow related. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, the I don't movie even... must have come first. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, but the question is, is like, you know, can you start a restaurant called Good Burger and, like, not worry about infringing on Good Burger the movie? I mean, obviously, it's helping you. If, if people assume that you have Ed's special secret sauce, you know, in your burger, then I assume you are ripping off some of the IP of the movie, and, you know, you should kind of be be punished for that. We'll have to do
1: some research on that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Someone check into this for us and tell us whether Good Burger the restaurant... I mean... Uh, I mean, I don't know that I want to be associated with a restaurant where you know one of the employees takes a bath in the running strawberry milkshake machine, and I also uh, don't uh, really get the wisdom of having strawberry be your only flavor of milkshake. I mean, for for years, uh, you know, Wendy had the had the frosty in only one flavor, chocolate, and I'm always a vanilla shake kind of kind of a guy. But you ever had the Frosty stars? No. Jack, Wyatt, ever had the? Yeah, I actually Frosty? love
1: Frosties. Yeah. But
2: here's the deal. Why the hell do they give you a straw with that thing at all? Oh, I know. It doesn't work.
1: It never, 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 never. I mean,
2: spoon. Yeah, spoon meal. Those of you that have seen me in like a like a full like spitting red faced rant know that I have lungs. And, like, I can suck strong enough to completely collapse the straws under the force of vacuum from when I'm sucking on them. Even a perfectly round one that I haven't mashed with any sort of pre-anger, I can just, like, take a perfectly round straw, like, even if it had a protective casing on it, and suck that sucker flat in a Frosty. And what this means to me is that the Frosty should just be served in an open cup with a spoon. Yeah. You know? Anyways. But uh, I'm told now that they have vanilla Frosties. I mean, I don't know what that's all about. Like they have extra space in a Wendy's restaurant now or they, 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 they have an extra flavor of Frosty. I don't know. I don't know. But if you guys were going to pick one flavor of shake, would it be strawberry? No. I mean not as your personal flavor but as like you have to sell to customers. No. 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 And, and this is why Mondo Burger almost took Good Burger out of business. I mean because they, they just think about stuff like that. Whereas, you know, all those other guys have is Abe Vagoda. By the way, I would go to any restaurant. Is Abe Vigoda still alive? Oh, it's a good question. I have to look. I kind of love me some Abe Vigoda. Even back then in the '90s, they were saying that he was about to die, which is kind of rough to say to your fry cook. But anyway, good good times. Do people in Covina talk like that, Stas? I I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. Fast food. Abe ah. Vagoda's still alive. Sweet. He's ninety three. I love Abe I love me some Abe Vagoda. You know who Abe Vagoda is, right, Stas? Uh-huh. Do you love Abe Vagoda? Uh-huh. Abe Vagoda, one, one of the people name checked in, uh, I think, was it Hello Nasty that the BCs uh, checked Abe Vagoda? I don't know. Anyway, love me some Abe Vagoda. Okay, so, uh, oh, but yeah, so where was I? I was in California, and it turns out I went to some place in California that I visited when I was like a very, very small boy the coastal redwoods, which are sick, amazing. And by the way, that's where they filmed uh, Return of the Jedi. Oh. Like the Ewok forest. So if you've never been to the coastal redwoods before, don't worry. The forest moon of whatever it is. What is it? Endor? Endor? Ewoks? Anyone? <sighs> anyway, so if you look at Return of the Jedi where they're flying through on the speeders and smashing into the trees and crap, like that's where they filmed it. And these trees are, I mean, I'm, my wife took all the good pictures because she's got the iPhone 5 and I'm on like a, like a flat 4 with like a, like a cracked out camera. But like, saw so I'll put some pictures up. But uh, holy crap, they are some impressive sons of guns. They're I live in a 20-story building, and these these trees are uh, almost twice as tall as my building. The tallest tree I saw was, like, topped, like, 375 for the redwoods. And it makes, like, these awesome Douglas firs that are only, like, 300 feet tall look like puning tins. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, any tree here would look like a shrub compared to the ones you have there. I also visited the sequoias in Yosemite. Yosemite, amazing, obviously. But... What I didn't know is kind of how awesome the kind of Sierras are. We went to, And also, we went to Lawson Volcanic Park, which is a national park in California that nobody knows about. And nobody was there. Like, nobody. Nobody. Like, we, like, saw, like, maybe one car, two cars in the hour and a half drive we were driving to get to where we were going in Lawson State Park. And when I told the person at Lawson, I was like, oh, you know, my friend, you know, McGee told me I should, you know, come and check this out. She's like, you didn't know about Lawson? I was like, no. She's like, it's a national park. I was like, but I don't live in California. She's like, it's a national park. We're a national park. I was like, oh, my God. They have such a chip on their shoulder. If you go to Lawson, which is in like, uh, like upper, uh, upper east of California, do not mention that you're going to Yosemite. Because I went to Yosemite. The, uh, the, the lady at the, at the visitor center was like – I was like, yeah, yeah. We just got from Lawson, Lawson. She's like, Lawson? I was like, it's a national park. She's like, nope, doesn't ring a bell. I'm like, it's in California. Nope. Like, the, like, like Lawson is like the forgotten state park. But it's pretty cool for those of you that are in that area. And uh, I was just uh, really, you know, surprised and amazed at the variation in beauty in California, especially your coniferous forests. Anyways, so uh, that's what I was doing. Uh, Oh, I cooked some good stuff on the camp, by the way. I cooked a crap ton of stuff with the Searsall, a boat ton of stuff with the Searsall. made pizza with the Searsall because I was in one camp uh, for two days, so I did a 24-hour – Rise on on the dough and then flash it off with a searzzle. And I had with me some some skimorza, some smoked scamorza, and you know instead of mozzarella and some uh, parmigiano It's tomato paste and anchovies, some oil, crushed it all up. And the next day, stas, the ultimate camp food by the way, uh, risotto alla 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 uh, with porcini risotto al funghi. And so I had like the super expensive dried porcini's, which are like you know super expensive but super lightweight. Some parmigiano, which doesn't need to be refrigerated, obviously. Uh, I bought the, you'd be happy, stars the Italian Brodo cubes, like those little, little like, you know, stock cubes mm-hmm. that I normally won't use but for camping are great. And I just busted that crap out. The kids didn't like it because they don't really like mushroom risotto, but to hell with them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I made them like leftover grilled cheese sandwiches. By the way, was on the, did a picnic with the All only, did grilled cheese sandwiches on the banks of the Smith River with the All sweet and you know how on the first night when you go camping you have ice so you have that's when you have your steak mm-hmm. or whatever yeah see some sweet steaks sweet steaks sweet sweet steaks anyway okay to uh, what did you do this last week how are the, the all doing are they in the air yeah they are they're in the air alright so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the current update they are in the air from China on the way to the good old Etaz Unis here uh, anyway let's get some questions uh, la, 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 la. Nick Mallon writes in, uh, and thank you, Nick, for providing the name Mal-In. I like that, M-A-L-Dash-I-N. Uh, that's, he spells his name like Fallon, but writes it like, anyway, whatever. Uh, about green meat. Hey, Dave. Uh, uh, I'm writing on behalf of sh- a Chef Steps forum question that has seemingly gone unanswered. After 72 hours in a circulated water bath at 54 degrees Celsius, and what is 54? I can never remember what 54 is. It's like 129, 130 or something like that. Somewhere in there. Uh, The vacuum-sealed short ribs were green on the outside. No smell, no funk, just the color was off. I did not add any uh, salt or oil to the bag pre-cooking. I simply had dried off the shorties before bagging them. Then uh, after I sealed them, I placed them in simmering water for a few seconds to rid any surface bacteria that can cause funkiness. Uh, with long cooking times, and that was it. I gave them a quick sear, which I will soon be doing with my sears all, and enjoyed them. People in the forum have suggested air leakage or pre-salting effect, but uh, like I said, I added nothing to the bag, and there was no leak, so I would love to hear from you. Thanks, uh, Nick. Uh, P.S., thanks for hating wraps as much uh, as I do. Eat a damn sandwich, people. All right, this is an interesting question, and uh, I will start by saying uh, that I have some links to point to, but I don't have a definite answer, but I will say this. Uh, In the many, many years that I cooked uh, boat tons of uh, short ribs, uh, sans sauce, and with sauce, uh, sous vide, because that was one of the standard things that we would uh, cook in the uh, low-temperature class. We would cook short ribs eight billion different ways and sear them off because it's kind of – A, it's one of the classic low-temperature things and whatever. Anyways, and also not just with short ribs but with uh, steaks and other whole whole pieces of meat, whole cuts like this, is – they often do take a greenish tinge, uh, take on a greenish tinge on the very outside of the meat uh, that goes away when you sear it the second time, and it looks really, really bad. In fact, you know, one of the arguments that I always uh, would say to people because you know, it used to be a big argument: do you sear before or do you, do you sear after? And you know, the answer I always have is, of course, both. But if you had to choose one, you choose sear after because. Uh, The surface of the meat not only doesn't look like it has a nice crust but often looks discolored and messed up and it gets fixed by like a quick sear because as you say, uh, like that coloration is not uh, necessarily come along with any sort of off flavor or funky flavor. Now, when when you cook something low temp for a long time, especially when you get as low as 54 in that range, you often have the problem of super funky blue cheese nasty meat stank. Uh, which comes from uh, lactic acid bacteria and their relatives that are growing and often cause blow off in the bag if you get floaters. But as you say, you might want to go more than a few seconds, but a dunk in simmering water does a lot to A, kickstart the temperature right at the surface of the meat and to stop any bacteria that are at the surface from kind of penetrating in. Now, uh, when you describe green, you also have to describe kind of what color of green you mean. Because there's also, and I don't think this is what you're talking about, there's the phenomenon of iridescence in cooked meats, specifically cured cooked meats, but it could be in non-cured meats as well. And this is a physical structural phenomenon that you get, and you often see it in deli meats. You've seen that before stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's not uh, something to kind of worry about, although some people don't like the look of it because they think it means it's spurled, but it's not spurled. It's just iridescent meat. And there's a lot of literature actually on iridescent meat. But that's not what you're talking about. I'm assuming what you're talking about, it's not um, bright green, it's more of like an army blackish green. You've seen that before on the surface of the shortage, right? It yeah. looks disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so then the question is well, what causes that? Short answer. I don't know. But I did some initial research. There's uh, Most of the greening in meats is – and I'll send you to a couple of articles that are available on meat color in general. This one doesn't have so much about greening, but uh, look it up. It's uh, it, on purdue.edu's uh, s- uh, site. They have uh, a meat color PDF that is pretty – uh, good review on meat color, and unlike the reviews that I've been using from like four four years ago or whatever, which is the last time I seriously investigated meat colors, this one's available free online. So if you go to uh, www.cfs.purdue.edu and search for their a meat color PDF, uh, you can you can take a look at that. Um, another good resource to look at is uh, look up uh, the meat industry services. Can you believe that's a corporation? Meat industry services. They have a uh, they have a, um, a thing called color defects in meat. Uh, And it's an update. (laughs) And it's a good PDF. And you want to read about that. Because I think typically it looks like greening colors in meats are due usually to sulfur. And uh, so so sulf sulf myoglobin. Uh, And either sulfur or hydrogen peroxide are the two kind of things. Both of which uh, are usually present as the result of um, bacteria that are are there on uh, on the meat. Now uh, – some of the bacteria are things like uh Wysella viridescens, which is uh you can look to there's uh an article called uh I guess it's Weicella, maybe it's Vicella. Anyway, um if it's German it'll be Vicella viridescens in meat products, uh, a review by uh Marta Descova, uh which is out in two thousand twelve, which talks about it which causes like kind of very vivid greens um in, in meats. Um but and there's also uh specific greening in meats that has a high pH. So I don't know if you had a particular uh, piece of meat. For instance, meats that are high, have a high pH, i.e. are not uh, acidic enough and cooked in, and that are stored in vacuum environments have a known situation where they can have uh, greening take place on the, on the, on the surface. But it can also happen in uh, in other environments if bacteria are there and apparently it doesn't take very much sulfur presence so they form like I guess they form hydrogen sulfide or they, or they break some sulfur off of sulfur containing amino acids in uh, in the proteins that's where the, that's where the sulfur's coming from from the from protein breakdown on the, on the surface um, so it, it you know and I don't think it's been studied that much in long long-term, uh, low-temperature cooking, but some of these bacteria, greening bacteria, if that is what it is, uh, you know, take a long time to kill, uh, even at relatively elevated temperatures, and actually can be strengthened by uh, an initial heat shock, so it could be something there, I don't know, but I know that searing makes it go away, just check out those articles, and anyone else who can get back to me and give me a better answer, please do. Got a caller. Caller, you're on the
4: air. Hey, Dave, a huge, huge fan of the show. Uh, This is Ray, formerly D.C., now living in Crown Heights. Hey, Uh, Crown Heights.
2: Nice. I
4: just had a comment. Uh, I enjoyed last week when you were talking about raw onions. I think an emailer called about getting a metallic taste. And I'm not sure if this is uh, relevant to what they were doing, but I know Rick Bayless of uh, Mexican cuisine fame talks about rinsing the the onions after he uh, cuts them and serves them raw. And I've noticed a big difference uh in doing that.
2: Well, I would presume that's true because uh you know the 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 kind of harshness in onions, okay, so look, right? So there's some there's some chefs like uh like, you know, um Michael Palambino who's like I remember, I saw him like go ape ape crap on someone because they cut their onions beforehand, right? Because, you know, the longer Mm -hmm. an onion sits after it's cut, like, the more this kind of problem happens. But the, you know, truth of the matter is a lot of us have to cut onions beforehand for meals or for whatever, or if you're going to serve it, like, in a salsa where it's going to be cut and served fresh and not cooked again. And, um... You know, like I think almost all of the stuff that's happening in an onion happens after the tissues are broken, right? And so it's a reaction between um, what's going on in the broken tissues and juices, and in this case, carbon knives, uh, carbon steel knives, or any sort of like non-passivated kind of steel surface or other metal ions for that matter. And so, yeah, I would bet rinsing helps out because I think it probably gets rid of a lot of the free surface crap that's been kind of liberated. Probably even like a light soak. I mean, the problem is onions are so porous that if you soak them too long, they'll just soak up. uh, They'll soak up, you know, water, which I don't think is what you want. But yeah, I would bet that works. I mean, like
4: yeah, I usually just give them a quick rinse, and that seems to uh, that seems to do it, especially for salsa or anything. Yeah, anything raw.
2: Yeah, nice. No, awesome. No.
4: So, oh. uh, love the show, and I like all the the side notes. And I don't know. Uh, I think it's been on the internet for a little while. But the James Brown miso soup commercial. Yeah. Pretty awesome. I think you might like it if you haven't seen it. Wait,
2: James. Like, so someone took which James Brown song did they take?
4: Uh which one? I think this is the one you guys used to use on your commercial breaks a long time ago. I don't know which one it is. They kind of remix it, and it's it's a Japanese commercial, and it's 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 bizarre, but it's. Uh, Highly entertaining,
2: and it, and it and it makes it sound like James Brown is a huge fan of miso soup. Not that he wasn't. I have no idea.
4: Oh no, it's him. It's it's him. Hey
1: Dave, uh, Dave, I'm gonna break the rules real quick and just run this.
4: You
3: do
2: it. Oh man, how did they? I wonder what. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: It sounds like he's saying Liz Khalifa.
2: Yeah, maybe he is. I don't know.
4: <laughs> that
2: is awesome. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, Sex Machine. By the way, you know who's playing bass on that is Bootsy Collins. Uh, Bootsy Collins was a very uh, young uh, guy on the tour bus when uh, James Brown was working on that, and he ended up that was kind of one of his like big early bass gigs was a sex machine which is maybe why it's got such a I mean look all of James Brown's bassists were awesome but I mean I have a special love in my heart for Bootsy but that is a classic I would love to like figure out like by listening if I can figure out what clips of his voice they took to make him say miso soup and I like how it's not really doesn't sound like it was really mixed by a native English speaker because it's not exactly how I would have imagined James Brown screaming miso but it's perfect though I like it it makes it even better Jack you already knew about this and you didn't tell me I, I did not know about this all right well you've just i'm now going to probably waste several hours of Nastasha's life once we get back to the lab like like playing that and then and then figuring out in my head exactly where they chopped it up so thank you thank you for throwing away several of Nastasha's precious as colors. she
1: bows her head down
2: <laughs> <laughs> all
4: right thanks we, for your time right. i appreciate it and uh keep going rock on guys thanks, Love it.
2: all right jack should we take a commercial break um. Yeah, give me one second here Alright, we'll come right back with some cooking issues
1: Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
2: And we are uh, back. Let me get a couple of questions from also at Harvard next week. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm going with uh, – McGee and I are doing the uh, Harvard uh, lecture next week. We're going to do the class lecture, which I normally – are you going up this time, Stiles? I think so. I'm doing the class lecture, which uh, you know McGee and I have done for the past what, like three years now, four years, three years, three. Like for the initial one, like, uh, and uh, this year we're not going to blow anything up, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cause the entire uh, Harvard Science Center to be evacuated. The de- remember the depressed looks on those like on those undergrads fa- or grads, whatever they were, in their lab jackets with like staring at the ground and, and like. In the dark and cold, when we evacuated them from that building, yeah, yeah, good times, not. And uh, the um, anyway, so I'm going to do that, which is the normal class we're going to do. I'm going to do some pro- hopefully some new demos, but I think it's just going to be rapidly slap, you know, demos. So I w- shouldn't cause too many problems like I normally do. Uh, hopefully, they're fun. We got a couple of demos that are, are really good for that kind of thing, like um, maybe I won't spoil it. If you think anyone's, no one's listening, is now it's, no. it's going to be at Harvard. I don't know. We'll talk about it afterwards. But I have a couple of demos that I really enjoy. Like, when you do demos, like, the good, like the bad thing about doing demos over and over again is that Nastasha tells you that you say the same crap over and over again?
4: The, you know? No, the same anecdotes.
2: I don't know. It's not true. Mm-hmm. It's not true. It depends. Like, certain things, like, are... So here's, what, here's where I'm going with this. So, like, the deal is, is that... You know, uh, you know when you've been teaching a while, you come up with demos and you see kind of what really demonstrates uh, something. And so, like a lot of the things that you think are going to demonstrate stuff, they don't really work. But then other ones that you don't know, they do. Like the oil and water, they did such a good demo. The oil and water, heated oil and water. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and so, uh, you know, like the good news is, you, with teaching is you come up with these demos that, you know, you really like people really stick in people's heads. And if you do them for long enough or enough times, you really get to uh, get a feel for what it is that sticks in people's heads about it. So you can really kind of like, you know, jigger the pedagogy around that crap. Um, and so anyway, we're building, a, we're building up a list of demos and I'm going to bust some of them out at the, at the Harvard. going to be good. Good. But then for the public lecture, McGee and I are, are going to do a lecture we've never done before. It's going to be, although you probably heard some of the same crap because it's the stuff I rant about all the time. So if you're in the, if you're in the uh, Cambridge area, I think that one's on Monday. Monday, Monday evening, we're doing a public lecture, and the subject of the public lecture is going to be what the hell's been going on the past kind of twenty years, like what's really going on. You know what I mean? And so it's going to talk about how um, you know the use of science is not just related to kind of these new technical and modern cooking things. It's going to be kind of how you know we don't think that what. Uh, everyone's doing the same kind of you know analyzing the difference between kind of like what, what Wiley does what Grant does at Alinea or what what other Huckster things are like kind of where this movement has gone and kind of what it means and what people are actually trying to do when they do it as well as talk about kind of What's different in food now in terms of who's going into it as is going into it before? So this kind of a discussion, and I'm sure I'll make some digs at my favorite targets like Air and, and and whatnot. And I think we got to find. I'm going to replay that video I did at Portland of the remember the stuff that we that video we made with Piper oh, yeah. on like the crappiest cocktail of all time using all like the weak 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 molecular gastronomy techniques that you know, that I have no problem labeling as that because I think they're just PT Barnum huckster crap and just making. So I did a, a, a lecture at Portland Cocktail Week. Was two years ago year and a half two years and uh we did a video that was like all of the crappiest things you could think of like to do to a cocktail like just the worst worst cocktail and uh and so we went through this whole two minute video i can't remember whether there's music or not there might have been music uh if not i'll put music on it because it needs some sort of stupid demo music in it and then uh and then at the end like literally we just flash up this sucks this sucks remember that this sucks. This is terrible. This is everything that's wrong with cooking and cocktails. This is the worst thing in the world. And uh, literally after the demo, someone asked me for the recipe. It was the worst. Worst. One of the worst moments of my life. It's like, it's like I always tell people, um, and should any of you out there who can hear my voice have to do a demonstration uh, for a camera that, where, where someone has the ability to edit you afterwards? Never. Show them what not to do because you think you're helping. So like when someone's showing me in person, like I appreciate it when they specifically do something wrong and show me how to do it wrong so that I know not to do it that way. So so I show someone how to do it right or what I think is right and then I show someone actually I'll I'll F it up. I'll make it wrong on purpose so that they can see it happening wrong and then hopefully let them taste and see how screwed up it is when they do it wrong. Inevitably – Editors use the wrong thing and put it up without explanation in video clips. Inevitably. It's just inevitable. So if you are ever in a situation where someone can edit you and you're not in the editing room, never demonstrate what not to do. You've seen How many times have you seen this, guys? Yeah. A bunch. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, no one knows any way to shut up, Dave. That's what you say. You say, "I, I, I freak out about it. And you're like, nobody gives a crap. Nobody knows. Anyway. Uh, Ruben wrote in about cherry pits. Dear shipping container occupants, I scored some delicious sour cherries this summer and have a couple of questions on putting them to use. One, I'm planning to make a sorbet with the cherries, puree, sweeten to 28 bricks, chill spin. Sounds good. Uh, any thoughts on what sugar will ensure a good texture? I understand the mechanics of freezing point depression and I normally experiment but don't have enough fruit left. I've got dextrose, fructose, liquid glucose, etc. I would just look. I would just look up, like, a recipe i don't i don't have kind of the ratios in in my head uh i would just uh f- I, I forgot to look this aspect of it up but uh obviously you can um make something more sweet and make it softer or use invert and have it be softer uh because of the increased um freezing point depression mm. i would just look up somebody else's recipe and see kind of what they add i wouldn't add I wouldn't add too much. Uh, I'm sorry. I forgot to look up the, the numbers and that because that's stuff that I, I wouldn't want to quote out of my head. I just don't do it enough. But two, here we go. Here's what I actually looked into for you. I have a lot of leftover pits. Any tips on working with them to safely make uh, – how do you think you pronounce it? Noyo, right? Noyo pit. <laughs> Noyo or, uh, or ice cream. I'd like to extract the most flavor, but I have no idea how to dose them to avoid cyanide toxicity and can't find any seemingly reliable information. I've seen some comments that roasting the pits eliminates the risk, but not much in the way of justification. Uh, can't say how much I enjoy the show every week. Thanks, you all. Ruben. So what we're worried about here is that any of the stone fruit, uh, and it's really the kernel, you know what I mean? Not the not the, not the, but not the meat and not the, not the roughly crap. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. The roughly crap on the pit. You know what I mean? The kernel. So when you taste them, and this is like, uh, you know, any stone fruit, apple, you know, pips. Um... All that stuff. Uh, what the problem with it is, is that it contains uh, amygdalin. And amygdalin, when you chew on it, uh, enzymes can uh, convert uh, the amygdalin into sweet, sweet cyanide, which is poisonous, uh, but also benzaldehyde, which is the aroma we get from. Um, From like you know that almond extract, benzaldehyde, which is what we like in in an amaretto cookie or something like this. Now, if you're just throwing a couple of uh, apricot kernels, which is typically what you buy here in in the states, uh, into a batch of almond cookies, then you know it's not going to be a problem. But when you're doing uh, a boat ton of uh, apricot pits, in fact, the cyanide level can or whatever. What are we using again? You're using cherries. You can get uh, enough uh, problematic crap. Cyanide to uh, cause problems. So, uh, man, and there is not a lot of information out there. So, I I will defer to, uh, you know, uh, chemistry drink meister Darcy O'Neill. So, if you're not familiar with uh, the Art of the Drink uh, uh, blog, you know, Darcy is a chemist and kind of drink person. He's the person who wrote Fix the Pumps, which is kind of the game changing book on uh, bringing back the art of the soda jerk. Uh, and, um, Fix the pumps is uh, old slang, soda jerk slang for check out the stacked lady at the uh, bar. Fix the pumps. Uh, I think that's what it is. That's my memory. Uh, So he, in August thirty first 2011, put a big post up on uh, cherry, specifically I think cherries, uh, but any sort of stone fruit. And um, cyanide in liquor specifically and goes through the different steps you can do. And he's a second post on how to get rid of it. His take on it, because he did some calculations based on the number of milligrams per milliliter cyanide in, in standard pits that he was able to get off the internets. Uh, and like the amount that's there. It, yes, it is possible to um, – have a dangerous level and that he wouldn't necessarily keep it around and recommend consuming it even though people have done it for a long time. Here's what he said uh, though in the second part where he says how to mitigate the uh, problems. One, if you leave the stuff a long time. So here's what he says. I'll just, I'll just read his quote. Uh, because he talks about how to get rid of it via distillation, which is possible. He also, by the way, just says buy uh, you know, oil of almonds you know, with benzaldehyde in it and just have it done with. But because he's thinking that someone is trying to make that flavor, not that someone has a product that they want to get the best use of, right? I mean I think the reason that you're not going and buying crap to make that flavor is because you have this product. It has other flavors in it besides the benzaldehyde and you want to use these things. So you know whatever. So you can't just go buy uh, the flavor and have done with it. But here's what it, here's what it goes. Um, Since distillation method isn't practical for the average person, here's another, though much slower method. Think months. Hydrogen cyanide can be hydrolyzed to to formic acid and ammonia. Yes, formic acid, the same stuff that fire ants use to piss you off. Hydrolyzation is done in the presence of water, so if you just infuse apricot kernels in vodka, some of the hydrogen cyanide will decompose. But the process is very slow. Heat will help. It should also be noted that formic acid has a fruity mustard aroma. Sorry, so aging it for a long time. Okay, and this is still Darcy. Okay, I understand you're impatient, so here's one. One more method. A number of sources have indicated that roasting the kernels at 176 degrees Celsius for 10 to 15 minutes will drive off the hydrogen cyanide. This could work, but you have to make sure all the kernels are free from the shell and ground coarsely. I'd recommend adding enough water to make a wet mass and set aside for an hour or more to ensure that the amygdalin and beta D glucosidase, which is the enzymes that make the sweet smell, uh, can react. Afterwards, spread the mixture on a baking sheet and heat until dry. There is no guarantee that this method will remove all of the cyanide, but it should remove some. Dry roasting is not effective since amygdalin is stable at that temperature. Also, the boiling point of benzaldehyde, which is the aroma you want, is 178 degrees Celsius, which is just two degrees higher than the cooking temperature. So you will most likely drive off some of the flavor component you are trying to capture. So uh, so there, there you have you know, what he says about it. I'll also add that you could probably heat it. The problem is – I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I, if I was doing it, I would just age it for like a year. Do it and age it for a year. And, and kind of see what happens. You know, if you're Darcy, you're lucky enough to have the uh, equipment. You could actually test whether or not you've gotten rid of it or not. You guys can't. Uh, anyway, so I hope that answered uh, some of your uh, questions uh, on that. Um, all right, Let me see where we are here. Stan B. Right wrote in. Uh, we talked about his caramel. So, greeting from France. We talked about caramel. What? Two weeks ago? Three weeks yeah. ago? Uh, Three or four weeks ago, I asked a question about replacing sugar in a recipe with caramel, i.e. the same amount of cooked to a brownness sugar. Uh, I tried to also make meringues with it, and the result is interesting. Um, And to go through the recipe, I I make a dry caramel uh, with about 200 grams of table sugar and pour it well hot uh, on uh, 100 grams of egg whites being whipped, almost the same as Italian meringue. After shaping the meringue, I cook them for two hours at 120 C. Quite a bit of the liquid caramel turned solid when pouring it into the egg whites. It got a bit scary, scary with caramel bits making strong clingity-cling sound from the electric whip. Maybe a better technique would be add a bit of water into the caramel, turn it into a syrup, closer to an actual Italian meringue. That should lower the amount of recrystallization before the caramel gets mixed into the egg whites or other prep. The taste was good, not great but good and close to expectations. But soon after baking and once cooled the meringues had a very brittle texture with a bit of crunch before turning to powder. However, after 5 or 6 hours the meringues turned very soft, almost marshmallow like. As you had mentioned on the show, the inverted sugar uh, the inverted sugars and caramel do suck in moisture. I would advise to serve quickly or keep in your dehydrator. Um, so there you go. Update on uh, whether or not what we say makes any sense. Uh, he also says, I appreciate your thoughts. The caramel taste can come from cooked milk solids. You might get some milk powder and toast and brown it or cook it in the oven in butter as per uh, ideas in food blog post from 2008 on that and then see how it goes. Uh, and then as a side note, he gives us an article on uh, – on, like the scientific article on pizza cheese. What, do you, what are your needs in a pizza cheese? Do you like blistered bubbles on your pizza cheese? Is it important to you? No. Apparently, it's very important. If you look up, here is the recipe for perfectly brown pizza cheese, as established by science. It's good It's really interesting reading for those of you out there that are interested in uh, why certain cheeses, uh, you know, bubble and boil not. And I'll give you the short answer. It has to have some fat, but not that much, and fairly high moisture, as well as being elastic and cohesive, aka mozzarella. But you know, hit, you know, Stan's question was, could you use like a modernist cuisine style emulsifying salt technique to make a cheese that acted like that, that had a different flavor? And I think quite certainly the answer is yes. Just have to get the fat content right. And, and in fact, they hinted this in the article. Get the fat content right. Increase the, the stretchiness of it by, with proper emulsifying salts, but not enough to make it like melt out totally. And then, uh, and then just make sure you have enough water emulsifying. It should work. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes?
1: So we have one caller that we can squeeze in before the show ends.
2: All right, caller. But we have more than one that we can't squeeze in? No, but I think we have time for one call. All right, caller, you're on the air.
3: Hey, Dave, it's Brian here in New York. How are you?
2: Doing all right. What's up?
3: Good. Um, I just want to say thanks for all your information on ice cream recently, but I haven't had a chance to implement it um, uh, in part because um, I recently got an allergic reaction and had to go through battery of all kinds of allergy tests.
2: Oh my God! Did and they what, do the? Did they do and the arm prick? what they've
3: come up with is the possibility of something called. If you look it up, pancake syndrome, what? which is dust mites, dust mites getting into flowery, flowery, powdery substances, if if uh, if, if it's got uh, heat or or um, humidity. So you know, here in the New York weather, that that might be a cause. So now, uh, based on this, and the reason it's called pancake syndrome is those people who you know put some uh, pancake mix in the back of their cupboard and every, you know, uh, every six months bring it out to make pancakes, you know, sometimes come down with a allergic reaction in which they've digested dust mites uh, unknowingly and uh, therefore um, come down with a reaction. So um, one of the things is, is um, got rid of lots of my flowers, and now the recommendation from the doctor is to keep it all in the fridge or the freezer. And so, what I'm wondering is, uh, with flowers and sort of powdery stuff, is there any consequence to keeping these items in the um, in the cold right. in the freezer or the freezer?
2: Okay, I got some answers for you on this, but here's here. Let me ask you a couple questions first. The tests that they did were they were they uh, were they bioassays or do they do skin prick tests? Both. I freaking hate skin prick tests. Let me tell you something. Like I am like you know a pasty white like northern european mutt right and so like for those of you that aren't pasty white like you know pasty white people have very sensitive skin and so it looked like i was allergic to every dang thing on the skin test just because that little like that little freaking thing that they scrape into your arm like that gives me a freaking reaction you know what i mean i hate that test i think it's completely inaccurate and crappy what do you think
3: yeah 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 i uh, I mean i'm I, i'm 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 not as pacy as you but uh, I definitely got some bumps and stuff from from all that,
2: but then they they verified it with like an actual kind of like bioassay they
3: yeah they drew some blood so yeah, so, yeah
2: that yeah. I believe like those things I believe but back when I developed my cherry allergy they didn't really have all that crap yet so like Literally, they were like, oh, you're allergic to lobster. You're allergic to – I'm like, what? I'm allergic to getting jabbed in the freaking arm, lady. You know what I mean? Uh, Anyway, okay. And I love the story about the the pancake things, uh, pancake syndrome. Stas, do you ever get yeah. pancake syndrome? Yeah, yeah.
3: Look at that pancake syndrome.
2: And my other question before I answer uh, your question is: Is it that the, that you're directly allergic to the mites, or is it that the mites trigger a reaction that now you can have even without the mites? It's the, that you're directly allergic to the mites. Possibly.
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's the, the mites. You know, it, 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 it's that you know, if you if you, it's one thing, if you know, you're breathing it, and they you know might be. Uh, might be you know in your bed or something like that or around your house, but if they're getting into something that you eat, and then you're eating them, then it's a higher concentration, uh, and 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 that's the that's the problem.
2: All right, so I lied. I have some more you questions. You know,
3: it's, it's smoking pot versus uh, you know eating it.
2: Or, or oh, I, was, I thought you were going to say Bill Clintoning it, like, but they're not inhaling. <laughs>
3: but,
2: but the uh, so here's my other. Here's my my other question, which just came into my head. What about cheese mites, or like the mites on meat, like uh, on like ham mites and stuff like that? Are those do, they, do those cross over? Is it only flour mites?
3: I have no idea. I didn't even. I didn't. They they told me dust mites uh, the the allergist, but you know I don't know if they can test for all those kind of uh, different different variables. You know, they can't test for everything.
2: Right. But how bad's the reaction? Is it a hospital reaction? I mean, they said
3: it was severe reaction.
2: Yeah. So it's hospital. So, like, what I would do is, like, the next time you go in to uh, talk to the allergist, I would stop by, you know, a cheese shop, like Murray's or something, and get, or whatever, and get, like a, like, a, like, a really mighty cheese that has, you know, some rind on it. Don't eat it on your own. You know what I mean? But, like, when you're in a challenge test situation with your doctor just or unless they know like you do a search of literature and they say no cheese mites aren't a problem but uh you know get get some of that to you know just so that you can know for a fact whether that's going to be a problem or not cuz i'm just curious you know i mean this is probably a known thing but i just wonder how kind of how specific it is to a specific kind of mite and also you know if you've ever stored um, hams uh you know dry aged hams which we're doing ham tasting next week um the uh, they also can have uh, mites, and you see like a dusty powderiness that's underneath the hams if you've been hanging them. Depending on mm. kind of what's around, you want to make sure that you're not allergic to, to that kind of stuff too. If you like, you know, long cured meat products, or if you like like cheeses, just something just something to check out. Um, so I've also found that you know, a lot of times you know, uh, a doctor won't necessarily like, think to tell you that. They might know it or they might not know it. But either way, I would check uh, before you have to stab yourself in an EpiPen and go to the hospital just for eating something. You know what I mean? Um,
3: yeah, I got to carry that EpiPen now.
2: Oh, I know. It sucks. And you know, they expire every whatever it is and you have to get a new one. And you know what the thing is though, dude? I don't know how bad uh, off you are, but uh, a lot of times I've had kind of mild reactions start and I always carry with me Benadryl. And so uh, – and you know, I don't know if they still make it, but the last time I bought it, they, uh, they used to make like Benadryl and like Listerine strips. It gets into your system extremely quickly. Unfortunately, <clears throat> you can't do it if you have to drive home or whatever because it, knock, you know, it makes you super drowsy and knocks you out. And I also feel very strongly that Benadryl destroys my sense of taste for hours. So you, know, you don't want to have to take it. You know, it's, I don't take it lightly, but it's a lot you – because know, once you stab yourself at the EpiPen, you have to go to the hospital. I mean that's basically it. But if you just – if all you're doing is taking Benadryl and you self-monitor for a little while, as long as there's someone there with you, you know, uh, I don't feel the need to you know, go to the ER because um, you, know, you can start – well, I don't know what you have. But with me, my throat closes up and so you can kind of feel when the reaction is happening. Anyways, uh, now to answer your question. Do not store it in the fridge, and the reason not because you don't that you don't want to store it in the fridge is there's a, a boatload of condensation that can happen, especially if the things. Or is freezer. Not. Yeah, freezer. Yes. So that's what I was getting. Just don't store it in the fridge. Store it in the freezer. So I buy uh, quite often a couple of brands of chapati uh, flour and other kind of like uh, whole grain soft uh, uh, Indian flours because I like them uh, in pancakes actually. Uh, and in biscuits because of the flavor that they have but the brands that I buy almost always have uh, larvae in them that hatch and so eventually they'll get buggy and if you've seen like a flower that has that kind of stuff it gets kind of little ropey threads in it and then if you look closely you can see kind of stuff that's there and then you have to sift everything it sucks and uh, so for years, like, uh, and I don't do it with, you know, Gold Brand or anything like, you know, I use Hackers actually, but, you know, uh, with those because I've never had a problem with those. But I store uh, all of those kinds of specialty flowers in the freezer always. And, um, and they're fine. They're fine. Uh, you know, I, I, what I do is I wrap them, I put them in zips, and I get rid of all of the uh, air in the zip so that there's not a lot of, you know, um, uh, you know, when, if moisture does get in the fridge, it doesn't condense in ice form on the flour. I've never had a problem with it clumping. Uh, I've never had any uh, degradation of the quality. You, you know, it's it's been it's been fine. So
3: zippies zippies work, not like mason jars that are that are fully sealed.
2: Well, you actually, in a mason jar, you you have more air because you can't compress them down. I usually keep them in their sack and then put the sack in a zippy, roll the – and then compress it down. And then get rid of it because you actually can get more air out of it that way. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Now, but here's here's the uh, – I had, I had a caveat. Oh, yeah. One caveat to remember is that, it, like, I don't know what you're making with it, but it's going to throw off all of your temperatures. So – um you know if you're used to things hydrating in a specific amount of time or if you're doing uh um, ah. you know mixing of breads or anything like this, just be aware that you're you know it's not that it has that much thermal energy compared to the water that you're adding or milk or whatever but if you have a recipe it's uh that where the temperature of the batter uh or whatever or in in yeast on a bread is is uh is critical that you might just need to adjust it a little bit or let the stuff that you're going to use come up to temperature. But I haven't had any problems. And, but, you know, like I say, that stuff I mainly use for biscuits and pancakes. So, so I hope that helps. Great.
3: great, Yeah. 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 I'm, 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 I think I, I might need to get another freezer because, uh, I don't, I don't have enough room for everything that I want to stick in there. You know, I got to put my, my masa in there. I got to put my, uh, I got to put all my, my my baking flours. I got to put uh, you know all the different uh, you know different stuff in there. Yeah. Polenta,
2: well, know, I mean the thing for, is if you're uh, going you know, if you're going to use this stuff right away, if you're going to use this stuff, I mean it depends on how long you're going to store this stuff too, right? Here's another thing that is true: once you get, and I know this for a fact with with uh, hams, right? Once you get uh, like a mite there I mean like for most of us it's totally harmless and it's like they're just there it's not because it's not like a hygiene thing whatever you know what I'm saying it's just they're there but once they're there like I know with ham like you not have a ham for like it seems like 8 billion years and then all of a sudden you get another ham in and all of a sudden they're back so I don't know whether you're going to have a problem where you need to kind of de- decontaminate your pantry somehow and I don't really know how to do that um, to, to kill them all but I mean it might be a situation where you only have to store your long held stuff I don't know You know what I mean? You also might be able to – if freezer space is an option, most of these things probably can't grow in a hardcore vacuum atmosphere. So then if you want to go to a uh, food saver situation, you might be able Mm -hmm. to vacuum pack your flowers, uh, not in a bag because that will compress the hell out of them and a lot of sifting work for you to do, but like in a hard container like a vacuum pack might be able to uh, reduce their ability to, uh, re- to reproduce. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying this is a possibility. That I'm thinking of off the top of my head, and it might be easier for you to do dry storage of you know, vacuumed containers. You just have to make sure that the vacuum is being maintain- maintained over, over a long period of time. Or you could just take small samples and vacuum down hard in bags and then just deal with the sifting. Because I've done that before on, on certain things. But just be careful when you're vacuuming uh, powders. If you use a strong vacuum to vacuum powders, you can uh, – I don't know. It's like, I've, like when, you're, when you're dumping powders into bags, you can aspirate them. And if you're having a problem, if there's already some mites present, you don't want to be aspirating a lot of this stuff when you're baking or cooking. And that's another point I might want to make is that your allergist might not be a cook. And so they might not think about the <clears throat> difference between uh, cooking with something – and, and consuming it, so you might want to be extra special careful when you're working with flowers, not to not to cause a lot of, you know, uh, aspirated particles. Like like we've all done it, where we fire up the Kitchen Aid a little bit too fast, and it goes whap 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 and throws a floof of flour up in the air. That might be a little more hardcore for you at this point than it would have been like a year ago. And so you might want to also take care when you're doing that, just to minimize your exposure.
3: Great yeah that's that's that, that's that's great that's great yeah um you know uh got to get that out of the freezer because you know i got my got to put the hydrocolloids in there and i'm not sure you know what's going to grow in 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 what for sure or or you know paprika and you know you know ground spices i mean i try to grind as much from fresh but uh you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know. Do they grow in that stuff? Well, again, you're gonna have to experiment. But like, why don't you get back to us and let us know? Uh, let us know what happened because I'm interested to, to hear uh, what happens, especially Ari the cheese and stuff like that. All righty.
3: Yeah, sounds good. All righty.
2: Good luck with it. All right. So Jack is rip- going to rip me off the air. Yeah. Uh, in a second. So here are the questions I didn't get to, and I'll get to them. Adam Rogers, uh, the author of Proof, good book, uh, wants to know. Uh, like how high I have to pour liquid nitrogen above your head to to have it uh, you know evaporate before it kills you? Maybe we'll get to that next time. I have a question about fennel from uh, Michael wants to know uh, if we can make it taste more. Well, anyway, we'll deal with that next week. Uh, on uh, Keel Clayberg wrote in about custard. Uh, I have answers on that, but we'll have to wait for next week. And also uh, a request that we get uh, one of the momofuku. Uh, uh, what's it called fermentation experts in on the show we should do that sometime alright and a question which would have been perfect after this flour thing from Sam on the uh, auto uh, step of, uh, of bread baking by uh, you know which was popularized by Raymond Calvel famous bread guy again we'll have to get to that next week this has been Cooking Issues